Well, we have been on a fast. Our church has been on a fast for two weeks. We challenged you two weeks ago at all of our campuses that we would fast complaining and we would fast whining for two weeks. And I would dare say that nobody successfully passed this fast, but um, I'm not a prophet. I just tend to think I know this. Um, I didn't pass it, but I was obedient as often as I could to follow through with this thing and make sure that a Troy knock it off. You know, you don't need to be negative. You can try to be positive and try to reframe things. And it's impacted my life, and I want it to impact your life. We're not here to punch a time card for Jesus. We're here to experience life change, impact, so that the trajectory of our lives can be altered. And certainly we're here to give worship to the audience of one, and his name is, is Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. Before I go any further, I would like to offer sincere condolences. This last week, a dear saint of God graduated and went, went to heaven, and that is um, Ed's dear wife, Barbara. Um, if you haven't had a chance to meet Ed, he's not here this morning, but we bless you, Ed, if you're listening or if you listen to this later on. Um, he's a dear man, and Ed and Barbara impacted the kingdom of God for decades. They served the Lord faithfully, been married over 50 years, um, were able to celebrate their 50th anniversary during COVID, but unfortunately didn't get the opportunity to celebrate uh, in the manner in which they had hoped to. But we've celebrated, we prayed with them. Uh, Barbara suffered from uh, many different things, primarily from diabetes for many years, but she was surrounded by her husband, her children, her grandchildren. When she graduated from this world and, and went to the next, and uh, though our hearts are, are broken, and our hearts are broken on behalf of Ed and his family, we, are, we take great solace in knowing that she is with the Lord. Somebody say amen. So please, if you remember Ed and his family this week, uh, pray for them as they're grieving this extreme loss. In fact, I'll even say that um, Craig and Sandy Thompson, uh, uh, elders at our church, um, who've been with us for a long time, were dramatically impacted by Ed and Barbara at another church decades ago, way back when you guys were young marrieds. Isn't that right? Praise God. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful. So it's just neat to see the family of God and the transitions and the moving and, and um, how God brings us together and what a beautiful thing. So volumes could be written about their, in, the impact of their ministry and the dozens and dozens and dozens of families that they inspired. All right, well, we're talking about the story, and we're in chapter 8, and if you're new or you're a guest with us this morning, I want you to relax, but what we're doing is we are going through the Bible. The Go figure, we're at a church, right? We're going through the Bible. We're chronologically going through the Bible on a 31-week journey, um, and it's, it's exciting. It's called the story, and you can jump on board anytime, but we are reading one chapter a week in the way this book is laid out. It is the Bible. It's written in chronological order. Um, and it is um, written in a novel format. So the verses and chapter numbers and all that stuff have been removed, and um, the highlights of many of the Bible stories are put together. It's not the whole Bible, but it's a lot of the Bible, and it develops the story so we can see the story from beginning to end. And so for 31 weeks until Easter, we're going to be going through this, and we're in chapter 8, and we're discovering that God has been with us all the way through in the journey. Last week, let me kind of bring up the snuff. Last week I talked to you and I said that Joshua had just taken over the mantle of leadership from Moses and his job was to get the children of Israel out of wandering in the wilderness to go into the promised land. And so he does that. And when he does that, they experience this gigantic miracle in which God says, I want you to take a marching band and I want you to shout really loud. And I want, when you go around the walls for a week, and then I want you to look at the walls and shout, and they're going to come down. And these were like six and 12 foot thick walls that were huge, huge edifices, and they came tumbling down. I got to just hit the pause button for a second. As a dad, as a grandfather, I love to tell stories. I've always loved to tell stories to my kids. I can't imagine having marched around the walls and they come tumbling down and not telling that story to my kids. I mean, I can imagine tucking my daughters into bed at night and them saying, Daddy, I'm like, yes, tell me the story of the walls. Well, scoot on over, honey. One time we were walking. I could tell the story, but there's a problem. We're going to discover in this chapter, the problem was that the people who experienced the miracle of God neglected to tell their children. And when they didn't tell their children, 
the next generation was completely lost. And so, this week, if you read chapter 8 in the story, you probably learned a whole lot about a whole lot of people. And we're going to talk about that in just, just a few moments. But if you've got your Bible, turn to Judges chapter 2, or you can turn to page 103 in the storybook. If you're planning on connecting with us, or if you'd like a copy of the story, they're back there. You can pick one up. Um, you can underline in it, keep it, highlight, whatever. But we'd love for you to kind of follow along with us. We want you to go on the journey with us. If you don't have a church home, and this is your first time, you're home now, baby. We want you to enjoy this journey with us. So Judges chapter 2, verse number 10, middle of page 103, it says, after that, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. To me, this is an extremely frightening verse. It causes a lot of anxiety inside of me because um, they knew the power of God. But because they knew the power of God, for some reason they neglected to tell their kids about it. And when they didn't tell their kids about it, the next generation didn't know God. So Judges chapter 2 begins this kind of cyclical pattern, and I kind of want to show you this, where, where we have disobedience, oh, we understand that, then we have punishment, we get that, then we have repentance, we hope we get that. Then we have deliverance, which is wonderful. But then we go right back to disobedience again. So let me kind of move this over again. This is what you're going to see in the book of Judges. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know what the Bible says. But more than that, I want to know how I see myself in the story. And that's what we're trying to do is help us understand the story itself. So what, we, what we're learning from Judges is the children of Israel. When we say the children of Israel or the Hebrews, or God's chosen people, it's all the same. It's all the same group of people. God's people, the children of Israel, disobeyed God. So God punished them. By punishing them, that sometimes, I mean, you gotta, you gotta sit, how many of y'all know you gotta sit in your stuff for a little while so that you won't stay in your stuff? And then they repent, and then God delivers them, and then they get back on the crazy train again. And then they disobey God, and then God punishes them, and then they repent, and then God delivers them, and then they get back on the crazy train again. And I'm going to tell you, um, this happens for a period in this one book for 400 years. And God, God gives them 12 different people. One man or one woman and eleven different men to be judges. So how's this work, Troy? Well, when it all starts with disobedience, and when they disobey God, they end up walking in a period of darkness. What does that mean? What are, what are they doing? What's what's the problem? Well, here's what they chose to do. It, it, it kind of blows my mind. They experience the miraculous provision of God, and yet they disobey God, so they choose to worship other gods, false gods, fake gods. They begin to bow down to gods like the god of Baal, and they worship these Asherah poles. You read about it in, 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 in the chapter, and it's, it's pagan worship. It's evil. It's idolatry, and they do this. What does that mean? Well, they're no longer standing out in the culture. They're blending in. Are you standing out in the culture, or are you just blending in? Are you compromising, or are you living and going against the flow of culture? I'm not talking about being weird. I'm just talking about not being like your pagan neighbors. And I'm not putting down your neighbors, but how are they going to know what they need in their life spiritually if we don't show them? if we don't live this life. Now, I want to summarize the entire, the entire book of, of, of Judges. I'm going to summarize the entire chapter 8 in just these few verses. Top of page 104, if you're looking, Judges 2, verse number 16. This is what it says. Then the Lord raised up judges. Would everybody say judges? Judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. 
Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. They were stuck. They were stuck. So this is their pattern of walking in darkness. And each time, God is going to use a judge. They disobey, they get punished, they begin to cry out to God, they repent. Here's where it's at. God sends a judge, one of the 12 men or women, to help bring deliverance to them. But when that judge dies, instead of them being like, Man, what a, what a time of peace and prosperity they had. They're like, let's get back to the crazy train again. Let's disobey God. Let's, we'll be punished. We're going to have to repent. God's going to raise up yet another judge. And this happens 12 times over 400 years. It's just nuts. And we can look at this and we can go, are you crazy? You just experienced God's miraculous provision, his power. You experienced God giving you something in an amazing way, and yet you disobeyed God. And I couldn't understand, like, one time, you're like, well, I messed up. I done messed up, right? And so you, you realize God draws you back through a little suffering, and you repent, and he delivers you. I couldn't see that once, but are you kidding me? 400 years of this? We could judge, but we do the same thing. We're just like them. We do this stuff. And I don't want to let us off the hook. I also don't want to make us feel guilty. It's just, there's a balance in this. When you think of the term judge, like I'm going to write it here. When you think of the term judge, you're probably thinking of uh, a man or a woman in a black flowing uh, robe sitting up high in a courtroom pronouncing guilt or innocence upon somebody. Get that out of your mind for a few minutes. A judge in this culture was something different. The judge really had a threefold portfolio. He or she was the political leader, he or she was the spiritual leader, and he or she was the military leader. So you didn't just have like these departments that oversaw these things with, you had just one person that was the spiritual leader, like the priest or whatever. One person that was the political leader, like the president or whatever, and one person that was the military leader, like the, like the, the admiral. And this one person was the judge, and God put this one person in charge. And I told you there are 12 judges, and so I've decided that um, this is the last gathering that I'm preaching this message at, so we're going to go through all 12 of them. It's going to be exciting. It'll, it will be done probably about 1.30. Um, I hope you brought a sack. I'm just kidding. We're, we're, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm going to talk about just two of them, but there are 12 of them in here. Incredible stories. I want to talk about, I told you there were 11 men and one woman. I want to talk about the woman, and her name was Deborah. Everybody say Deborah. Thank you. You guys are really responsive today. Deborah was a woman of great influence. Um, you got to understand, in this culture, in this time, a woman being a judge or a woman being a leader was out of the ordinary. It was out of question. It, just, it was not going to happen. But like mighty women of God today, God used her in a powerful way. Our campus pastor, network executive pastor of the whole operation, Pastor Trinity, God is using her in an amazing way. Our assistant campus pastor, Pastor Kyler, God is using her in an amazing way. Pastor Veronica is our, is our assistant campus pastor for the Spanish church, being used right now in Modesto. God is using her in an amazing way. Selena is going to be delivering the message next Sunday to all of our campuses as one of our aspiring pastors and an intern in our network. God is using her in a mighty way. God uses women. Listen, if you are coming to church or you're watching online, I'm going to say something rather bold right now. If you don't believe there's a place for women in ministry, find another church. Because here at New Life, we believe the B-I-B-L-E and what it says, and we're not taking anything out of context, God calls people to ministry, to serve, to have authority, to have anointing, to have power. To Listen, it's not about lordship. It's about leadership. It's about servitude. Deborah had an anointing upon her life. She was a woman of, of, of great influence. It wasn't common, though, but God used her in a powerful way. 
kind of reminds me, several years ago, there was a wealthy CEO. He and his wife were going on a getaway. They were going to their vacation home, very wealthy CEO. And on the way, they stopped to get some gas at the gas station. So they pulled over, and the gas attendant started taking care of the car, and the, the husband decides to go inside to get some snacks for him, his wife and himself for the rest of the trip that they had. He comes out after paying for the snacks, and he sees his wife looking and talking to this gas station attendant. It appears to be kind of an intimate conversation they're having with one another. He's like, well, that's interesting. He gets inside the car. And as he gets inside the car, he begins to adjust the rearview mirror, and he sees his wife embrace and give this gas station attendant a, a, a hug, a, a very kind of affectionate hug. And I thought, well, that's odd. And she gets in the car, and he begins to ask his wife, what, what, what was that all about? And she's like, well, honey, I, don't, I never really told you this before, but um, th that man that I just gave a hug to, before you and I ever met, sweetheart, um, I was engaged to be married to him. But it just didn't work out. He's, he was kind of taken back. He's like, oh, wow. So he's driving down the road a little bit further, and, he, and it's silent. He doesn't really know what to say. Then he decides he's going to break the silence, but now you know, this wealthy CEO has kind of got this smug arrogance about him, and he says, isn't it interesting, if, if you'd have married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant. And she says, no, you don't understand. If I'd have married him, um, uh, he'd be the CEO, <laughs> not you. <laughs> I don't, some of you I just don't understand. And, uh, <laughs> Let's, let's go to Judges chapter 4, middle of page 105. Would you turn there, please? Judges chapter 4, the first four verses, right in the middle of that page. Again, check it out. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Disobedience. Now Ehud was dead. That was one of the judges, Ehud, that you, we're not going to read about today a lot, but he died. So now they disobeyed God. So the Lord punished them. The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, you get all messed up with all these titles and names and stuff, and some of us check out. Somebody say yes, right? We do. Don't check out today, because Sisera, everybody say that name with me, a Sisera, don't name your child that, Sisera, Sisera, if you have a child named Sisera, please forgive me, I beg your pardon. Um, Sisera was the commander of the army, and this is why you don't want to name your child after him, because Sisera was the commander of the army of the evil army. Sisera, over here, commander of the army of the bad guys. You got it? Yes? All right, we're going to continue reading here. Um, was, was based in uh, Herosheth, Haggium, because, um, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Check it out. They've been being punished for 20 years. All along, they're trying to cry out for repentance, but God's letting them sit in their stuff. You ever tried to cry out for repentance before and said, God, where are you at? Why aren't you helping me? I asked you to help me, and you're not helping me. Maybe he wants you to sit in your stuff for just a little while longer, not because he hates you, but because he loves you, because he wants you to get off the crazy train. Anybody know what I'm talking about, yes? Man, I know what I'm talking about, yeah. Um, uh, and for about 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, was leading Israel at the time. Here we go. The prophet is coming. The, the, the judge is coming. God's going to bring deliverance through Deborah. This is going to be exciting, guys. I hope you're dialed in. Deborah had a very close walk with God. What does a prophet mean? A prophet means she foretold or foretold the word of God. Now, check out. Uh, top of page 106, we see Deborah talking. And I said, Sisera over here was the commander of the evil army. Y'all with me? Like, ah, bad guys, commander, Cicero over here. Over here is the good guys. The good guys, in this case, are the Israelites. Deborah is their judge, their spiritual, political, uh, military leader, but she's got a commander, a general, if you will, in her army, and his name is Barak, okay? Barak, Barak, commander, good guys, Sisera, commander, bad guys, right? So we're all on the same page, right? So she's talking to Barak on this side, the commander, and I just really want you to get this. Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera, a bad guy, into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor and with 10,000 men following him. Now, you got to get this. I just want to summarize for time's sake. Deborah's conversation um, had a point with Barak, her commander in her army. 
um, who, by the way, Barak was a little reluctant to go down the hill and fight the battle against the enemy because the enemy has got him outnumbered and the enemy's got him outgunned. So this is a terribly dangerous thing to do. But um, Deborah, his judge, his leader, is telling Barak that a woman is going to be the hero of this battle, which is against the rules of culture in that day. Well, I think that Barak, the commander in her army, is thinking, well, okay, then you must be the woman. You must be the woman that's going to be the hero in this story. Because remember, she is prophesying. She is foretelling what God is going to do. There's no arguing with that. This is what God said, that a woman is going to be a hero, the hero in this battle. Well, I want you to know how things transpire. There's this battle between the Israelites, the, the good guys, and the enemy. Well, the enemy begins to run away. They're getting their butts kicked. Can I say that? Sure, they are. They're, get, they're getting their booties kicked um, in this battle because the good guys are defeating the bad guys. If you're with me, say yes. What happens is Sisera, bad commander, decides he's going to leave his people. You don't leave the people you're leading. He's going to leave his people, and he's going to run away, and he's going to try to find some safety. So what does he do? Well, he decides he's going to go to um, somebody's house, somebody's tent uh, that they're living in, a, a family friend, because there was an alliance between Sisera's family and this other family. What was this other family's name? Well, there was the husband by the name of Heber, everybody say Heber, and his wife, Jael. Think of Jael, right? Um, Heber and Jael. And so Sisera goes and knocks on the door, right? And, and, and uh, uh, Jael opens up the door and says, well, Sisera, hello. And he's like, can I, can I come in? And she's like, Come on in. Now remember, Jael and Heber are part of the Israelite clan. But they got this family friendship thing going with Sisera. But this is what the, how the story goes. And it is so awesome, right? She's like, come on in. You look tired. He's like, I'm so tired. I'm so thirsty. I've been on the run. I just need a place to hide out. She's like, well, why don't you lay down right here? So he lays, have some warm milk. It doesn't say this. The implication is have some warm milk. Get all snuggly-wuggly. Let me tuck you in a little bit, right? Nighty-nighty, and she sings a song. To, I don't know what she does, but he goes to sleep. And she goes outside, and she takes one of the tent pegs out of the ground. And she grabs a tent peg, and she grabs a hammer. And while he's sucking wind, she puts the tent peg, this is what the Bible says, right by his temple. <laughs> this is going to get crazy good. And she takes the hammer, bam, bam, bam. And the Bible says the tent peg goes all the way through his skull into the ground. Oh, that is awesome, right? I mean, some of you are like, Troy, that is gruesome. It's in the Bible, man. It's pretty awesome to me, right? So here's the deal. The prophecy is fulfilled. Deborah said that a woman is going to win the battle. Why is this story important? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's important because, well, um, God's using somebody who was an ordinary person in a very, very important role. Um, you're an ordinary person, and I'm an ordinary person. God uses, in this case, he uses a perceptive housewife to kill a military commander, and the war is one. And this, this unlikely trend of God using peculiar people, man, it's going to continue into the life of the second judge that I want to talk to you about. And his name is Gideon. Gideon is called in the Bible a man of courage. After Deborah dies, they go back into the crazy train cycle again, a disobedience, a punishment, repentance, and God raises up a judge. In this case, for this second one, it's now been seven years. They disobeyed God. It's been seven years that they've been experiencing punishment. How are they experiencing punishment? Let me explain it to you. There are two groups of people that are attacking the good guys, the children of Israel. There is the, um, the Midianites and the Amalekites, also known as the Bloods and the Crips. So we've got these two gangs that are attacking. And I say that 
almost like truthfully, because that's what they are, is they're gangs of thugs. They are evil, wicked, vile groups of people that want to do nothing more than bring fear into the life of God's children. How are they doing that, Troy? Well, not only are they attacking them and pillaging them and doing all kinds of evil, wicked things to them, um, primarily what they're doing is they are waiting until their crops grow their grain grows, and then they're going in and they're burning their crops. Well, they're not growing their crops so they can take it to the market so they can sell it and make some money. They're growing the crops so they can have food to live, to eat, like that, to survive. And what happens is they're burning their crops and they're killing their animals. The bloods and the crypts are coming in and doing this. The Amalekites and the Midianites are coming in and they're, they're doing this to the Israelites. They're killing their, what are their animals for? Their animals are provide milk. Their animals provide meat. Their animals provide labor to till the soil. I mean, it's a big deal. And they keep coming in and doing this. It's right, causing all kinds, all kinds of problems. They are ruthless barbarians and they are oppressing the, the, the children of Israel, God's, God's chosen people. So I want you to look at page 108, Judges chapter 6, verse number 11. And why am I telling you to turn to the pages? Because I want you to underline and highlight and mark it up and remember that Judges chapter 6, verse number 11, first full paragraph, page number 108. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abazite, where his son, here we go, Gideon, you got to listen to this now, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. I don't know if you're an agricultural person or not, but I know this. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat out in the open air where the wind is blowing. Because when you thresh the wheat in the open air, it blows away the chaff and it leaves the wheat behind. The good grain so you can make your breads and you can eat and all that kind of stuff. But what he's doing here, Gideon, farmer boy Gideon, what he's doing is he is, he is um, uh, taking care of the wheat, but he's doing it in the wine press. What does that mean, Troy? Paint the picture for me. No problem. The wine press is far removed from the air, intentionally so. It's, it's, it's like barricaded off. It's away from, you don't want wind coming in there. Why in the world is farmer boy Gideon uh, taking care of the wheat uh, in the wine press? Why is he choosing to do that? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, when you, when you think about the process, um, He's threshing the wheat in the wine press because he wants to not be in the open air. Because if he's in the open air, the Bloods and the Crips have got lookouts all over the place. And they see him, farmer boy, threshing the wheat in the open air. They're going to blow the whistle or whatever it is they do, and down come the thugs and they're going to burn all the wheat. And now there's no wheat, there's no food for his family, for the, for the community. And so he does it in hiding. This is... Some people say that Gideon, some preachers and teachers have said that Gideon was kind of a coward. I don't know. I don't know if I'd call him that. Kind of, I'd call him a very practical man. I would say he was kind of a realist. Sometimes you need to be a realist in your life, right? Instead of going out and saying, yeah, I double dog dare you. No, stay, in, stay back. Do it here. You want to feed your family. And that's kind of what he was doing. So in this story, God is operating for this judge named Gideon I don't want you to misunderstand. Not every one of these 12 judges came in ready-made. See yourself in the story. You're also a leader in your own area, in your own arena, in your life. But you're not ready-made. God is forming you. He is developing you. He is sanctifying you. And, and, and that's what he's doing with Gideon. And he's going to change Gideon from being a farmer who's full of fear to being a warrior who's full of trust, who's full of faith. It's a powerful, powerful story that we're going we're gonna to read about. And, and so look at verse number 12, the very next verse. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> First of all, the angel of the Lord, some scholars, and I happen to believe, was Jesus. Now, it may have just been an angel, but either way, you've got this figure showing up that represents God. 
The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he's like, dude, I'm hiding, threshing the wheat in the wine press here. You see what I'm doing? And I love Gideon's response to this. Uh, by the way, what was the angel of the Lord doing? He's trying to pull greatness out of this man. That's what you need to do, is pull greatness out of somebody. Believe in them. Declare it. Declare it over their lives. Declare it over their future. Declare it over their family. Pull greatness out of somebody. Truly believe it. The angel of the Lord declared this, and I love Gideon's response. Um, uh, uh, pardon me, um, Lord. That's what he says. Now, I need you to get this, not just kind of read through it in monotone, but kind of get the emotion behind uh, par Pardon me, my, my, my Lord, Gideon replied. That's what the Bible says. Um, uh, but a uh, quick, quick question for you. <laughs> um, uh, why has all this happened? Um, uh, if the Lord is really with us, um, what the heck, right? What's going on? I think that was his spirit in this moment. And, and um, uh, wh why has all this happened to him? If the Lord is with us, then, then why has all this happened? Where are all his wonders? Where are all his wonders that are... Well, my relatives, my ancestors, they spoke about. I don't know. When they said to us that the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. But now, but now the Lord, now the Lord, you know, um, uh, he, well, he's abandoned us into the hands of the bloods and the crypts. I think that we understand Gideon's perspective. Because I think in your life, maybe today, but there are times when you feel the same way as Gideon. You read, God says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God says, I can do all things through Christ who gives. Fear not, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Stand and know that I am God. And you're like, well, really? Because that shouldn't have happened. And I think we all have times that we feel like this. And I want you to know that God can handle the questions. Gideon had questions. God can handle the questions. Um, so Gideon was this farmer attempting to save the crop, and the angel inspires him. And I want you to check out what it says in Judges chapter 6, verse number 16. Check out page 108, right down in the middle there. The Lord answered... I will be with you. Pause. I don't know if this reminds you of a previous message that I taught, something you've read before, but a few weeks ago, Moses was having a real hard time, and he didn't know how God was going to use him to get the children, the same people, to get the children of Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh, and God said to him, I will be with you. Just last week, Joshua had no idea how he was going to rally the troops and going to take down Jericho. How am I going to do that? Take, take the promised land. And God says to him, I will be with you. And once again, God is speaking to his servant, and he's saying to Gideon, you think of yourself as a farmer boy. You think of yourself as somebody who's in hiding. You think of yourself as somebody who's afraid. But I'm calling you to greater heights, and how are you going to do this? Because I will be with you. And God is saying the same thing to you today. The deck is stacked against me, Troy. But God is saying, I will be with you. And you'll strike down all the Midianites. And you're going to leave none of them alive. Such a powerful verse. And so God commands Gideon to do two things. Number one, before this happens, he's like, I'm going to test you to see if you're trustworthy. Do you know God has permission to test you as often as he wants to? And he tests Gideon. First thing you need to do, Gideon, is you need to go clean your daddy's house. I'm not talking with Murphy's oil soap. I'm talking about cleaning it out from all the evil in the home. Uh, in other words, you need to look back and address those things that were evil. You need to look back and address those generational curses in your family lineage, and you need to repent and give it to the Lord. You're like, I didn't do it. Repent on behalf of your bloodline then, but repent Give it to the Lord. Break those soul ties. Break those ties. Break those family of origin issues. You need to do that. 
And so Gideon has to do this. So what does he do? He goes into his daddy's house and cleans off the front porch and gets rid of all the graven images and all of the idols. And everybody in town thought he was amazing. Wow, what a man of God. That's not what you read if you read chapter eight this week. Now everybody hated him. Everybody in that community and they wanted to kill Gideon. Well, thank you, God. I'm serving you and doing what you're telling me to do and now everybody hates me. That might happen. That might happen. I remember one year when I was a young pastor, um, we're at this little church. We had our big Christmas tree up because it's Christmas time in the, in the, front, of the front of the auditorium. And I challenged the people said, here's a black trash bag and a bow. I want you to take this thing home and Merry Christmas. And I'd like you to come back next week with a black trash bag and put it under the Christmas tree. Uh, And this is your gift to Jesus. Well, what are we supposed to put in the black trash bag? Go home and sweep your house clean. Go in every room of your house, in every cupboard, in every closet, in every drawer. If you find anything in your house that would be repulsive to God, that is not holy, that does not bring you into a deeper relationship with Jesus, get rid of it. That's back in the day of cassette tapes and records and things like that. Get them out. Uh, Videotapes, get them out of your house. Books that don't bring honor to God, get them out of your house. Magazines you have no business having, get them out of your house. Board games that aren't just funny. Get them out of your house. Clean your house. My whole point was to try to teach people not about this legalistic way of living, but that you've got to put God first in every area of your life. That's a beautiful thing. The next Sunday, people brought back all these trash bags and put them under the Christmas tree, and it's a beautiful thing to see people giving things to the Lord. I hope it's stuck. I'm telling you, that's what, that's what Gideon did, was he cleaned the house. And, you know, if you're a committed Christian, there's going to be sometimes in your life that you're going to have to take a stand for your faith. It's, it's going to happen. And sometimes it involves taking a stand even with your own family. Don't make a scene at your family reunion. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't be spiritually superior to everybody in your, in your, in your household. But if you've made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, there are going to be some tense moments, and you need to know that in your family, where you've got to courageously take a stand for what the Bible says and for what you know to be right. And you need to follow through, guys. Now, I'm telling you, don't be arrogant. Don't be mean-spirited. and Don't be harsh. But be passionate. Because your identity is found in Jesus now. And you should be loving in the way you convey it. Some of you, I believe, have been ridiculed and ostracized because you've become a Christian. And I gotta wonder if you, like Gideon, this isn't your first, first test. God may be preparing you for something in some incredible way. And that happened in my case. I'm a first generation follower of Jesus Christ. And we broke the cycle. We're breaking the cycle and breaking the curses. Gideon, this was his case too. And yet God used him as a judge. That's a powerful story, guys. God God wanted to see a step of boldness from Gideon. Why? Because God's altar cannot coexist with the altar of a false god named Baal. God's altar cannot coexist with any other altar in this life. The second thing he told Gideon was, okay, clean the house. Now I want you to go and I want you to fight against the Bloods and the Crips, the Midianites and the Amalekites. I want you to go fight against them. And, and God, promises, God promises to be with him. Well, so Gideon says, okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You promised that you would be with me. And so Gideon is a pretty smart guy, and he knows that they have, the Bloods and the Crips together, have about 135,000 fighting men. And Gideon just starts doing this campaign, and he rounds up about 32,000 fighting men. And he realizes there's a numerical discrepancy here between what we have and what they have. So he takes it to God and God's like, you know, you're right. There's a real problem with these numbers. They've got 135,000. You've got 32,000. Gideon, you got way too many soldiers. That's what God says to him. And, and so he says, God says to Gideon, here's the deal. I want you to ask your fighting men, how many of you are afraid? 20,000 of them raised their hands or step forward or stand up or whatever it was. So God says, tell them to go home. Uh, uh, 20, so, so then he's left with 10,000 10, fighting men. So 22,000 left and 10,000 fighting men are left. And, and he's like, God, we got a real problem here because I got 10,000, they got 135,000. And God's like, you are so right, Gideon. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. You've still got way too many. We've got to pare this thing down. 
<laughs> so he says, I want you to take them off. Uh, take all your 10,000 men and take them. They're thirsty. They've got to be thirsty and take them to the river. And here's the deal. I want you to tell them, get a drink. Just get a drink. And the ones who dive in, drink and just kind of, they're hot and sweaty and they just kind of want to dip in the water. And then there's going to be others that are going to kneel down next to the water and they're going to take a drink of the, from the side of the water with their eyes still looking forward. These, these are the warriors you want. You don't want the ones that aren't looking. So Gideon does it. And sure enough, a ton of them, uh, I almost said a buttload, but you can't say that in church, a ton of them, a, 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 a ton of them, a ton of them dumped into the water. And guess what? Only 300 men knelt down and took a drink, put their eyes forward. And God says, now you've got enough men. He pared it down. And I'm not a math major. Some of y'all are scholars when it comes to statistics. That was the only class in my whole collegiate experience all the way through that I got a D in, but I'm gonna write this down anyway. I believe, and I, by the way, that was an earned D. I, I, I said, thank you, God, for that D. Yeah. Uh, one to 450 ratio. One to 450 ratio. That's what God pared it down to. One to 450. Hmm. And it says in Judges chapter 7, page number 111. Turn there if you would, please. This is, this is powerful. It says, Gideon and the hundred men with him. Now, there's 300 men. There's 200 men somewhere else. Uh, they're working the scene, but a hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew the trumpets. There we go again. It's all about a marching band, apparently. They blew the trumpets, and they broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding the right hands of the trumpets that they were to blow. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran around and cried and, um, as they fled. What just happened here, Troy? Explain it to me. No problem. So, 135,000 people down in the valley. They're asleep. It's the middle of the night. They've still got a guard. They've still got a watch going on. 300 men, Gideon's people, decide they're going to surround them on the edge of, the, of the, 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 the foothills. And Gideon's got this plan that God gave him. Trumpet. Everybody's got a trumpet. And everybody's got this um, flash bomb, okay? Like a, like a pyrotechnic, right? And so he's like, here's the deal. When I say go, I want you to blow the trumpets and slam those flash bombs and everything's going to go crazy and, and God's going to do a miracle. And that's exactly what happened. Ready, set, go, bang, boom. I don't know what it was. And um, next thing you know, these, these uh, bloods and crypts, they wake up. The Midianites, they wake up and they pull their swords. You know how you wake up and you're like, what, what, what's going on? And they just start slashing anything that's moving. They killed themselves. I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking that somewhere around 130,000 of them died by killing themselves. About 5,000 of them realized, what did we just do? Because they thought the Israelites were among them not just around the foothills. They got so confused. God had a plan. So the other 5,000 took off and ran, and the Bible says that Gideon went after them, and he slaughtered all of them. What a, what a story. Some of you might get hung up on the fact that there's a lot of death. There's a lot of pillage in the Old Testament. Why does every man, woman, boy, and girl have to die? That seems a little crazy. Keep in mind, there's a deeper story. And the deeper story is God is going to root out every, every element, every atom of sin. And ultimately we discover that it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. God can't kill, he can do whatever he wants to do, but he shows us that he can't kill, he won't kill all sin physically, it has to happen spiritually. So ultimately he has to send another sacrifice, and that's his one and only, his one and only son. Hmm. So you've got this story of, of this 450 to 1. The Bible says now, after this is over, uh, the Bible says they enjoy a great time of peace because God delivered them from the bloods and the crypts. God delivered them because of Gideon, who was one of the judges. It was a powerful time. I'm surprised when people say I could never be used by God. I'm surprised when people say I could never get out of debt. I'm surprised when people say I could never turn my marriage around. I am surprised when people say I could never share my faith. I could never be the mom I want to be. I could never be, I'm like my dad and I'm like his dad. I could never change that. 
people are, listen, what are you afraid of? Maybe you feel in your life like the deck is stacked against you. It's a one to 450 ratio. Maybe you feel a whole lot like Gideon in your life. For Gideon, God wanted to whittle it down. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, that opportunity you didn't get, that struggle that you didn't see coming, that unexpected frustration in your life, maybe God didn't cause it. But maybe God is using it. Maybe God is using it as a whittle-down process, just like he did with Gideon, so that when your miracle takes place, he will get all the glory. You won't get any of it. Your family name won't get any of it. God is going to get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for the miracle he does in your life. We learn from the Ten Commandments that God is a jealous God. That's why the first one is, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. I am first and foremost in your life because he wants to receive the glory for your miracle. You know, there are so many other powerful stories of these 12 judges in the book of Judges. I hope that you'll read this story or these stories one day. But, you know, there's people, that, um, Othaniel, uh, there's Ehud. Uh, you need to read about these people if you've never read about them. Shamgar, we talked about briefly. There's Deborah, we talked about Gideon, we talked about Tola is a powerful judge in the Old Testament, Jair. Hey, one of my favorites is Jephthah. You ever heard of Jephthah? Um, remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham takes Isaac up the hill, and he's like, I'm going to kill my son because God told me to, and God's like, stop! There's a ram in the thicket. He's like, oh, thank you, God. Remember that story? Well, Jephthah was one of the judges, and he was working on, the, the Israelites had disobeyed. They were being punished by God. They cried out for repentance. Jephthah is one of the judges. He's helping them fight against the crypts and the bloods, uh, you know, the, the, the evil guys, and he says to God, he says, God, if you will help me win this battle, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that greets me when I come home. I don't know if he's thinking Fido is going to come up. He's going, okay, i got to sacrifice you, Fido. I don't know what he's thinking, but he's thinking something, right? Uh, he's probably thinking maybe the mule is going to come out or the, the, is, is the ox is going to come out and they're going to eat good tonight. I'm not sure what he's thinking, but I'll sacrifice the first thing. God helps him win the battle, and he goes home, and his, his daughter comes out to greet him. And this is no happily ever after story. This is in the Bible. And so he has to sacrifice his daughter. And he does. He gives her three months to mourn with her friends in the, in the woods because she'll never marry, she'll never have kids. And then she comes home and he keeps his promise to God and he sacrifices his own daughter. My goodness, guys, this is all in the Bible. These are, these are, these are real stories. And it's not advocating that. It's just so many... There's others. Oh, we can't leave Judges, the book of Judges, without mentioning the nut job Samson, right? Um, and if you read about Samson's life, he was, a, he was a crazy man, right? He had a lot of flaws. Let me just tell you, uh, God uses judges, leaders that are nuts, right? Are you following me? Some of y'all have great hope now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> because he uses people right where they're at. In the midst of their flaws and their struggles and their problems, uh, one time Jephthah, or one time um, Samson was again the enemy. This time it wasn't the, blood, uh, the Amalekites and the Midianites. It was called an uh, enemy called the Philistines. Another gang. Okay, so what's another gang? Name another gang for me. The, the Sharks. Isn't that, isn't that like a like a hockey team? I didn't. Uh, I, okay, so yeah. Okay, let's let's see. Well, that's a little like sensitive right now. But KKK. Let's say that. Okay, so he's going to fight the KKK, which is a horrible gang. You kind of want to bow your head to that one, but it's a terrible one. But he picks up the jawbone of an ass of a, of a donkey, right? Um, that's what the Bible. This, by the way, is one. I actually found one. Like, it's not the one, so don't get all excited about it. Like, this is, that's the one? Yes. Well, actually, if you've got enough money, it just might be the right. I'm just kidding. Um, but th this is the jawbone of a donkey, right? So this is, this is, this is what, this is real. This is real. I found this. I, I, I went to a store um, that had fossils, and I found that. I'm like, I've got to buy that, because I really want to know what it, what it feels like to hold the jawbone of a donkey in my hand. And Samson picks it up, and he uses this as a weapon. The Bible says, he's a big, big guy. But the Bible says he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Again, once again, God was with him, and he used, he used Samson to deliver the children of Israel until, of course, he died, and then they fall back into disobedience. Again, this is the cycle 
Disobedience, punishment, repentance, deliverance, and it's the same today. It might sound a little different. It might be disobedience. God withdraws, not his presence, but he might withdraw some of his provision. He might withdraw some of his protection because he loves you too much to let you stay the same way you are because his goal is to get you to come back to repentance. And I want you to know that each of these judges begins with the phrase, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they walked in darkness. When I was a kid, my dad, who was a hard worker, a laborer, um, he, uh, there was an accident at work and he got metal fragments in both of his eyes. And they were, they were like, like really hot metal fragments, singed his eyes, and he had to have uh, eye surgery, both eyes. And he had to have patches in those days. It was different. There was no laser surgery. He had to have patches over his eyes. And um, we weren't allowed to have any light in the house because light would, could damage his eyes and it caused extreme pain while he was in the healing process. Even though he had tape over his eyes, patches over his eyes, um, and he had to wear these sunglasses that had the visor things on the sides too and underneath. But we still couldn't have any light in the house. I remember my mom putting uh, black trash bags and taping them on the insides of the windows, closed the blinds, and closed the curtains. And we weren't allowed to turn any lights on in the house during this, it seemed like forever, it was probably just a couple of days. I remember one time I got in trouble, or I felt like I got in trouble because I opened the refrigerator and I didn't tell my dad who had a towel with him that if we were going to open the refrigerator or we had to turn on a light for any reason, he could put the towel on top of the sunglasses, on top of the patches, on top of the tape so that he couldn't see any light because it hurt too bad. I got in trouble because I opened the refrigerator and the light shone and I mean, it was painful. I also remember that my dad went back to the eye surgeon for a follow-up appointment and the doctor told him, he said, Mike, that's my dad's name, Mike, you're going to have to start getting used to the light. It might hurt, but the problem is you're getting too comfortable with the darkness. The Israelites had gotten pretty comfortable walking in the darkness. And they had become very comfortable. And I think that maybe you can see yourself in this as well. It's easy to get comfortable in the darkness. And if we're not careful, our walk with Jesus can become a whole lot like the walk of the Israelites. Earl Nightingale said it this way, you will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. Oftentimes we don't we don't change when we see the light, we change when we feel the heat. When we're in this mode here, it causes us to change. Have you been in a cycle in your life of poor choices, sinful behavior? It's not over, it's not over. God is still working in your life. God is writing your story all the way through. To the last paragraph, to the last word, to the last letter, to the last period. You might not be able to see, but God can see. You might not have the strength, but God has the strength. You might not have the courage, but God will give you the courage. You might not know the way out, but God will provide a way out. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus, through his death, as we lower you into the water, through his burial, as you're under the water and through his resurrection as we raise you out of the water because of that because of what he did Jesus won and because Jesus won you win too when you put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ Father we love you thanks for your word so much in this powerful book God we thank you right now for your favor, your love in our lives. We say, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.